Hello, everyone. How y'all doing? Good. I'm glad to see you all survived the heat wave this past week. That was no fun and a uh, terrible sign of things to come this summer. Get those ACs out. Uh, my name is Russell. I'm one of the pastors here. If it's your first time, thank you for joining us. We have a tagline and essentially Hope Brooklyn, we say wherever you are on the spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Um, and we believe that those aren't words for us. And so if it's your first time joining us, we are in a series called Questions. And the basic premise behind questions is that we wanted you guys to text in questions about the faith, about spirituality, about Christianity, and the ones most asked, we're going to write sermons on. And I think that's really important. This is the first series of Hope Brooklyn post-launch. If you don't know, we launched as a church plant on Easter um, just about a month ago, which is crazy to think that it's already been a month. Um, but I think this is really symbolic and formative um, because we're a community not afraid of asking tough questions. That's what we're going to be about. We're a community not afraid of going there. Now, we don't know what's going to happen once we get there. We might not have clear answers. We might sit in the tension, um, but we're going to ask those questions. And so that's really important to our DNA and our culture. We have three pillars that guide us as a church which will prove very beneficial for us in this series. They are this. Number one, we are crowds and disciples. So I said the tagline, wherever you are on the spiritual journey, there's room at the table. There might be some people here who they look at Jesus and they're like, you're the Lord. I, I'm following you, I'm all in. But there might be people here who don't feel that way, who are like, ah, I just wanna hear some more teaching. I'm not sure who you are. And that's totally fine. We welcome that. We are a community where every question is available. But consequently, wherever you are on that spectrum, that will determine how you hear the teaching. And which brings us to our second pillar, we are a community of the story. Christianity for us is less a set of propositions that we sort of ascribe to, and more a story about a living God who we orient our lives around. For us, it's less about check these boxes, I do these things or I don't do things, these things, and it's more about who is this God that we're learning to turn our faces toward. Which brings us to the third thing. We always eat together face to face. Can I get an amen for that one? Yes. Food was central to Jesus. When you read the story of his life, he is constantly eating with people. And generally the wrong people. He got in trouble for that. Hopefully we develop a similar reputation. We always share a meal. And when Jesus was talking to his disciples right before uh, his, his death, his resurrection and ascension, he told them, look, the world's gonna know you not by your theology. He didn't say that, I'm adding that in. But the world's gonna know you not by your theology, but by your love. Which is why we can have differing opinions on some of these questions and we could still go to the table together. Hope Brooklyn, as a community, we, we lose as a witness to the gospel if we don't end up at the table together. That's how we lose. We don't lose if we disagree um, about aspects of theology. We lose if we lose love for one another. So those are our three pillars and they will guide us into our, um, our sermon today. Will you pray with me before we start? Jesus, we orient our faces towards you today. Some people in this room, uh, they know you, and you know them. 
Some people maybe knew you once or the you they thought they knew turned out to be a caricature. Some people aren't sure who you are, but you know every single person. You are the God who came in flesh. You are the God who died for the sake of love and you are beckoning every person back to your table. So as we, uh, as we go through this passage today, Lord, as we consider this question, will you speak to people's hearts? Will you pour out your spirit? Um, and will you illuminate truth in all of our lives? We ask this in your name, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. All right, so the question we're examining today is pretty straightforward. Is Jesus the only way to God? Now, we got a couple derivations of that question. Is Jesus the only way to eternal life? Um, is Jesus the only way to heaven? This was, I, I formed it this way because this is the widest possible net I could, I could create. Now, granted, if you're here and you're an atheist, you're gonna disagree with my premise from the start, but this sermon kind of isn't for you, but we'll have a conversation later, so I'd love to have coffee. But if you are any sort of theist, if you believe in any sort of God, then this is a question that you can, we can start on common ground. Is Jesus the only way to that God, to that creator? And our text today that we're going to read is from the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4. Uh, so you have your Bibles or smartphones, or we're going to put it up there uh, on the screen We turn there. Uh, for those unfamiliar, Acts tells the story of the first church. So after Jesus lives, dies, resurrects, ascends, he pours out his spirit on the first group of people who call him Lord, who see that there's something unique about Jesus and are worshiping him as God. And a lot of sort of the, the, the book of Acts details these, this movement of Jesus' followers. And first, it's intra-Jewish. That is to say, all the followers of Jesus are Jews, but then it spreads outside the Jewish people. And it includes um, what the Jews call Gentiles or non-Jews. So we're early on in the story. We're in chapter four, and we are reading verses one through 12. Context, Peter and John, who are two of the disciples, they just healed a guy. There was a cripple at the temple, and they healed him. So now he can walk, and they got in trouble for it. So let's pick it up from there. Chapter four, one through 12. The priest and the captain of the temple guard, the Sadducees, they came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. And they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. Now the next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? And then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then let this be known to you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone 
you builders rejected, which has become the capstone, the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So is Jesus the only way to God? Now, if you're not a Christian here, you're already gonna take issue with the source that I quoted to answer this question, Um, the Bible. Because you're gonna say, hey, look, the Bible's not authoritative to me. Um, So you're gonna disagree there. Now, here's the issue, though. Um, It's as Blaise Pascal put once. He goes, it's a remarkable fact that no canonical writer meaning Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, none of the the writers of scripture, no canonical writer has ever used nature to prove God. What's he saying? He's saying that God, if you want to come close to who he is, you gotta come to him on his terms. And who God is, is the God who has revealed himself slowly and through time in history. He's the God, if you read the Old Testament, he's constantly referenced as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What does that mean? He's saying, if you wanna know who I am, you gotta know the story of Abraham. You gotta know the story of Isaac. You gotta know the story of Jacob. So I know uh, you might have an issue with me quoting the Bible. The problem is I cannot build a case for Jesus's identity and God's cosmic plan outside of the historical story that God is telling, compiled in this book. And this is a book made up of lots of different genres. It's made up of poems and prophecies. It's made up of letters and and proverbs. It's made of lots of different genres over thousands of years. But if you wanna explore who Jesus is and his role in this God's plan, you gotta come on his terms, which is remarkable that you can't, he, he gives moments of transcendence in nature, but he reveals himself fully in his story. So we've got to go to the Bible to answer this question, is Jesus the only way to God? Now here's the second interesting point. When you look at this question, you look at the the historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, you find that all the major faith traditions have an account for him. And generally, the same account. There are some variations between Judaism and Islam, but if you look at the Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, Um, and even sort of our modern society, our our pluralistic secularism, which we would probably call humanism, like treat people well. When you look at them and you ask someone who's an adherent of this religion or this faith, who is Jesus of Nazareth? They would all say probably the same thing, or most would say the same thing. He's a wise, moral teacher, right? He He was ethical, he was wise, he taught a way of life that is worth emulating. Now the problem about that is the only group of people who worship Jesus as God, us, Christians, when you approach our text, our historical accounts of Jesus' life, and you read them closely, you cannot form that opinion. It discredits that view. So just one example out of of many. In John's gospel, in John's gospel of Jesus' life, Jesus says this, he says, I am the way, the life, and the truth. No one comes to the Father except through me. Imagine, imagine that I'm Jesus and I come to you and I said, hey, look, love your neighbor as yourself. And you're like, oh, that's cool, I can get on board with that, I like that, okay, awesome. Now here's the next thing. I'm the way, the life, and the truth. No one comes to God except through me. 
And then you're like slowly moonwalking out of there, right? <laughs> like Jesus said some stuff that was crazy. He's constantly saying like, hey, I know this person just defrauded you of $100. Don't worry, I forgave them. Like, who, are you, who gives you the right to forgive them? No, no, no. And the other thing is, you sinned against me and I forgave you too. Don't worry about it. Like, what? Who is this guy? He didn't just say stuff that was good advice. He said some controversial stuff. He put himself on par with the God of Israel. So we cannot finish the account of his life and say, oh, you're just a wise teacher. It's as C.S. Lewis said. And C.S. Lewis um, was an atheist for a while before he became a Christian. And he goes, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That's the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell, which interesting enough, parts of Judaism does say. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and call him a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And that's true. I think for anyone who has read the gospel accounts the historical accounts of Jesus of Nazareth's life and ministry closely, anyone who's read them closely, you come with one of these three. You can't call him a great moral teacher. Either he is exactly who he says he is, the son of God, with great moral advice that our hearts shout out and be like, oh, I can get behind that. Or he's a lunatic. Or he's a demon. One of those three. I love the quote by Napoleon, Napoleon Bonaparte, where he says, I know men, and I assure you, Jesus Christ was no mere man. I myself, Charlemagne, Alexander, Caesar, we founded empires. But upon what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force, upon violence. Jesus Christ founded his revolution upon his own death and upon love. And at this minute, millions of people are ready to die for him. I only start this way to sort of frame it and be like, look, you can make your honest assessment of who he is, but a wise moral teacher is not an honest assessment. That's not considering the facts. Lord, lunatic, or the devil. So, if we jump in then to the question, is Jesus the only way to the creator, to God? I think there are sort of two questions pregnant in that. There are two ways, two meanings of that question. The first would be, is Jesus the only way to God? Kind of objectively, you're asking a question about the nature of reality, the nature of the universe. And the second would be, which we'll get to in a bit, is Jesus the only way to God? You're asking a question about the character of Jesus. What's he really like? Well, let's start with the first one. Is Jesus the only way to God objectively? That's kind of like saying, hey, does the earth always have to revolve around the sun? Or could maybe the sun revolve around the earth once or twice? Right, you're asking a question about the nature of the universe, of the cosmos. Does two plus two always equal four? Or maybe could it equal five? And so as Christians, as objectively, according to the story that we have been given, as God has slowly revealed himself to the world since its beginning, 
We can only say that two plus two equals four. We can only say that the only reality there is that we know of, the only reality the world exists in, the one we're in, is the one where the creator God is triune. One God and three distinct, beautiful, dancing persons. And the second person of that God, the son, Jesus, comes in the flesh, gives up his God likeness, comes in the flesh, lives a life that no one understands, which is super magnetic, is crucified by his own people, is resurrected by God and defeats the power of death, ascends back to God, and because of his death and resurrection, has kind of reconciled the created world, which rebelled from God, from the creator, reconciled the created world back to the creator. He is the bridge, he alone is the bridge. Tim Keller talks about, um, and for those who don't know, Tim Keller is a pastor in the Upper West Side. Uh, he talks about a forum, an uh, interfaith forum that he gave at Hunter College one time. It was a conversation between him, um, a Jewish rabbi, and a Muslim imam. And they agreed, they agreed, that if Christians are right about Jesus, then Jews and Muslims fail to love God as God really is. This isn't a moral statement, it's just an objective statement. Like, if Christians are right, that Jesus is God in the flesh, then Jews and Muslims fail to love God as God really is. But if Jews and Muslims are right about Jesus, then Christians fail to love God as God really is. What we're asking, is Jesus the only way to God? We're asking, who is God? Is he triune? Is Jesus the incarnate God, the God who gave up his glory and came in flesh? And for Christians, it's clear, he is. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and we through him. All comes from one God, and we exist for him. We do not know our fullest selves until we are in relationship with this God. And because of the, the split between the creation and the creator, the second person of the creator, Jesus, came in flesh to reconcile, to pay the debt so that the heavens and the earth can unite again, so to speak. So all comes through that one mediator, Jesus. We approach the Father through him. Now your objection might be, that's super exclusive. That's super exclusive. But notice, your objection is kind of, you're, you're, you're calling exclusive the, the nature of the cosmos, so to speak. Or it's as C.S. Lewis says, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell, right? If Jesus is who Christians believe he is, if God is triune in this way, no one can stop it. Like that's the only reality there is. And we can get mad at it, but it's like scribbling the word darkness on the cell. It doesn't do anything, right? But I don't think that's what your objection, your objection is. I don't think your objection is to the story necessarily. I think people's objection is to the way this story has been co-opted and appropriated by people like me, those who call Jesus their Lord, his followers. Evangelism is the fancy word we use for those who, who tell the story of God, the story of Jesus to the world. And the objection is not to evangelism. The objection is to the way evangelism has been done over the last 500 years that we know of in the West. And it can be summed up in one word, colonialism. 
colonialism. I don't remember where I heard this quote, if I read it or if it was a lecture, but it's always stuck with me because it's just so tragic. And I think it sums up exactly what our objection is. It says, when the white men came, we had the land and they had the Bible. We closed our eyes to pray. And when we opened them, we had the Bible and they had the land. And that breaks my heart every time I read that. See, that's the objection. The objection is not to the story, because if you read the story, (laughs) it's of a God who makes himself poorer and poorer and weaker and weaker for the sake of love, who makes himself so weak. The creator makes himself weak for the creation and even dies at the hand of his creation for the sake of love. And he's calling his followers to likewise make themselves weak and powerless for the sake of love. So anytime that this story is used by people to get really rich, incongruency, dissonance, anger, and rightfully so, the story of a God who becomes powerless cannot be used to gain power. The story of a God who is peace incarnate cannot be used to commit violence. That's the objection. And we don't have to look internationally. We can look at colonialism in the last 50 years in this country where this story has been co-opted by both Democrats and Republicans to further a political end. The gospel creates a people who are neither Republican nor Democrat. They are something entirely else. They are a new creation. And what is the saddest part of all of this is that when you realize that the gospel takes root in a people, in a culture, he doesn't destroy culture. Jesus renews it. He restores it. He maintains the beauty of it. Or as African theologian Lamen Sene says, the gospel does not create remade Europeans, but renewed Africans. That's what the gospel at its best does. And I'm convinced the sad history of where the gospel has not taken root, where the story of Jesus has not taken root in people's lives. It's because it wasn't a real gospel, it was a false one, where someone was getting something out of it. There's a movie out called Silence, I encourage everyone to watch it. And read the book first if you want, if you're a reader, it's awesome. It's by a Japanese author, Shusaku Endo, and it tells the story of Jesuit priest um, in, in, um, in Japan. And there's this moment where sort of um, the, the guy who's charged, the Japanese guy who's charged with expelling all traces of Christianity in Japan, there's a moment where he's talking to one of the Jesuit priests. <laughs> Excuse me. And he goes, look, here's the thing. You're bringing the gospel, you Portuguese, but so are the Spanish, and so are the Dutch, and so are everyone else in Europe. And they're also bringing lots of other stuff, and they're taking stuff too. See, that's the issue. Anytime that Jesus' story Anytime that Jesus is used as a means toward an end, it's sin. It misunderstands the story. Jesus himself is the end. He's the start of the sentence. He's the end of the sentence. It all starts and ends with him. The reality we live in is the end. Jesus alone is Lord, and he's bringing the heavens back to earth. And so in our passage later on, um, we're told that the, the Pharisees and the high priests, they called them. They called them and ordered Peter and John not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it's right in God's sight to listen to you rather than, rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot keep from speaking about what we have seen and heard. Notice 
Peter and John were in trouble, not for exploiting this guy, not for manipulating him, for healing him. They gave a cripple the ability to walk. They weren't getting anything out of this. And they're like, look, you judge if we should listen to God or you. We cannot help but speaking and acting according to what we've seen and what we've heard. And if Christianity is less a doctrine to accept and more a reality you find yourself in, kind of like the matrix, you awaken to this, this world around you, the contours of which you didn't see before. If that's what Christianity is, then we realize that the only reality there is is the one where the world is created by a triune God and Jesus is God in flesh. God separated from God to seek and to save his world. And the secret of Christianity is that whoever God is, whoever God is, if you're here today and you have lots of questions about God, there's like, you don't know who he is or what he's about, the Christian answer would be this. Whoever God is, whoever the creator is, he is perfectly revealed in Jesus. Whoever God is, and there's lots of questions I have, he has perfectly revealed himself in Jesus. So when we see Jesus, the enfleshed one, we see the Father. As Jesus says, he goes, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because Jesus did nothing but what the Father does. If he suffered, it's because the Father suffers. If he offered mercy, it's because the Father is merciful. So if you're wondering who is the Christian God, read the accounts of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the way Jesus acts is who God is. So that's the objective way of asking this question. The the other way would be, is Jesus the only way to God? Kind of, it's a question not about the nature of reality, but the character of Jesus. You're kind of saying, all right, I'll accept the terms that we all came from one God who is three persons. I'll accept the terms that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity who came in flesh, who came and died, and through his death and resurrection, he has created a way back for for the world to be reconciled to the creator. I'll accept those terms. Well, what does that mean then? Does that mean I have to believe in him, whatever believe means, to enter heaven? What about my friends who aren't Christians, who are really faithful Buddhists, who take care of people better than Christians do? What about them? What about those people who are really good, who don't confess Jesus? You're asking a question about Jesus' character. And hopefully you see that that's a question I can't answer. Is Jesus the only way to God on that last day? Who's he gonna let in? That's a question only Jesus can answer. But I will say this. He gives hints. Because whoever God is, he is perfectly revealed in Jesus. And so we read the story of his life we, we receive hints of the type of God who created the world. We know that God is insanely humble, insanely humble. And one of the earliest um, songs of the church in Philippians 2, Paul is counseling the church in Philippi and he tells them, hey, have the same mind that's in Jesus. Think the same way Jesus thought, who in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be hoarded, but he gave it up. That's like saying, hey, have the same nature of Jesus and become a beetle for the sake of love for the other beetles. 
and then let the other beetles kill you because you love them so much. And that, that's a terrible analogy. But that's kind of getting at the idea. Jesus is so humble that he does not even consider God-likeness something to be grasped, but for the sake of his creation, who rebelled from him, left all, and became human to follow. God is obsessive in his love. The classic verse that we all know, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son and Jesus wanted to come. That whosoever trusts in him will not perish but have life. God is full of mercy on the cross as Jesus is unjustly dying. He looks out at his persecutors, at his crucifiers, and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus is full of compassion toward people. Like I said earlier, he got in trouble for who he hang out, hung out with. He hung out with the pariahs of Jewish culture and was perfectly content, was more content with them than he was with the morally righteous ones. Well, I should say morally self-righteous ones. And we know that God hates evil because evil is the stain on his beautiful creation. Evil is this blemish that keeps him away from fully loving and fully relating with you. It's as C.S. Lewis said. I know I'm quoting a lot of Lewis today, but I think he says it right. He goes, we do know that no man can be saved except through Christ. We do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. We do know that the, the mechanics of the universe are such that on that last day, and there will be a last day, Jesus alone will be lifted up and every eye will see him and every heart will know and every heart will testify what they think about him at that moment. And then Jesus alone will welcome people into his kingdom. Now who he decides to welcome, that's anybody's guess. And again, just following the contours of the story, I think we'll be shocked by his mercy. I think we'll be shocked by how good Jesus is. Make no mistake, it is Jesus on the last day. But his mercy will be such that, yeah, we'll be shocked. I think that he might be looking for one reason to invite you into his kingdom and not one reason to keep you out. He tells a parable in Matthew 25. And he talks about him being the king. And he says on that last day when the king comes, the king will separate the people like sheep from goats. And he'll look at the sheep on his right and the king will say to them, come you who were blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison, you came to visit me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Evidently, according to this parable, there will be those invited into the kingdom who didn't know they were gonna be invited in, who were serving others and had no idea they were serving Jesus. Now your objection might be, that's arrogant to try to convert people to your religion. That's arrogant. Well, if I'm getting something out of it, yes, it is. But if I'm not, if Christians aren't trying to convert people to accept this doctrine, but telling them about the world they live in, 
telling people about the God who made it and how they can experience life in abundance and are giving up their pride and yielding themselves to the reality of the world. And the world, the reality of the world is simply this, Jesus is Lord. As Peter and John said, there is no other name given to people under heaven by which we can be saved. Jesus alone is Lord. If the reality is that Jesus is trying to awaken you to who God is, and he'd rather die at your hands, if that means he can demonstrate how powerful his love is for you, yeah, I'm all in with that. Jesus is ushering in a kingdom, but it's a kingdom where the king comes and dies for his enemies. He doesn't conquer his enemies by killing them. He conquers his enemies by dying for them. And his enemies are so shook by what king would act like this that they become his servants. And then it's a kingdom where us, us Christians, we are called to go and die for the enemies of Christ, not to fight back, to go and heal and to die. And hopefully they will respond to that love and be like, what in the world? And we'll recognize who God is. There's a, a famous line when talking about the first Christians in Rome when they were persecuted and martyred and how Christianity spread. And I forget if it's Tertullian or, or someone who's just astonished by the Christians in the Colosseum, how they're, they're going to their deaths with praise for God on their lips. They're going to their death with blessings for those who are killing them. And there's this line where they go, look how they love one another. The love that will not fight back because Christianity is not about what you'll fight for. Christianity is about who you'll die for. That's the essence of the gospel. So let it be known to all of you, says Peter and John, to all the people of Israel, that this man is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, and he has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among mortals by which we must be saved. We don't know the mechanics of the whole story, but we know the skeleton. And miraculously, it's Jesus alone. Will you close your eyes with me? Peter quotes Psalm 118. And he says, Jesus is this cornerstone. The cornerstone is the first stone in ancient architecture. It was the first stone laid and every stone for that building was laid to the right and to the left in relation to it. In the gospels, there's a story in the exact middle of Mark's gospel to be, fact, to be uh, sure where Jesus is walking in a town with his disciples. And there are tons of idols everywhere. And rumors have already started to circulate that this guy is something special. There's something, there's a, there's a power in him. He says crazy stuff, but he backs it up with healing. And, and he says he's humble and we believe him because he seems really humble. And he doesn't claim power like the other rulers do. He gives it up. And he's looking at all these idols and he asks his disciples and he says, who are people saying that I am? 
who are people saying that I am? And his disciples go, well, some are saying Elijah, which is one of the Israelite prophets. Some are saying John the Baptist. And then he looks at Peter and he says, but you, but you, who do you say I am? I don't care what anyone else is saying about me. Who does your heart say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Lord. That is the cornerstone of the entire gospel. And so with every eye closed, and every heart silenced, Jesus has come and he's saying to each one of us in this room, I don't care what everyone else says about me. I'm not gonna tell you their stories just yet. I'm looking at you and I'm talking to you. And you, who do you say I am? Am I a liar? Am I crazy? What does your heart say? Am I crazy? Or am I exactly who I say I am? The Lord who came, who gave up my glory because I love you, because I love this world and I refuse to abandon it. And I will redeem it. And I will purge evil out of it. And everyone is welcome to my Father's table. Everyone, regardless of what they've done, regardless of anything. If they will yield to the only reality there is, I will humble myself before them. I will wash their feet. I will love them if they will let me love them. Who do you say I am? Who does your heart say I am? And if you want to yield to that, I encourage you. Just say, you are the Lord, Jesus. We don't know exactly what that means. We don't know what that entails. We have no idea what we're saying yes to. But our eyes are open to the reality of this universe, of a God who creates the world from joy a God who is love, who loves so deeply, he comes in the flesh to die. You are the Lord. Jesus, I pray for my friends here, for everyone in this room, wherever they are. And I ask that you speak to them, that you reveal yourself to them. Reveal your story is true, that you have not come to oppress, you have not come to hurt, You've come to set free. You've come to open the eyes of the blind and heal cripples. You've come to give us life in abundance. That's the secret. And it comes through the most narrow way possible. It does come from abandoning lordship of our life. We do say, I am no longer in control. I, I am not my own creator. Jesus is. And I surrender to you. But the life on the other side of that confession 
is unspeakably joyous. Give us courage, Lord, and speak to your people. Who are you? You are the Lord. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.